Hello and welcome. It's David Shirley from Irish Funds. Following a break over the summer months, we have restarted our events and industry engagement activities, and this podcast episode is taken from a webinar held on Friday, 17th of September, on the emergence of digital assets. The presenter is Laurie Kyo, who is an adjunct assistant professor in technology trends with Trinity College Dublin, and also works as director of digital assets and blockchain with BNY Mellon. We have introductions from Kieran Fennessy of City and a Q&A led by Michael Cartoskelly, also of BNY Mellon. I hope you enjoyed this episode and check back soon for more great content. Hello and good morning all and welcome to our new series of the Irish Funds Technology Speaker Series. We're delighted to be kicking these uh, speaker series off again and we'll be running them over the next uh, couple of months on a monthly basis. Just to let everyone know, this session will be recorded and will be available afterwards through the Irish Fund's uh, social media channels. So delighted to uh, to kick this off. And um, any questions you may have, please just hold on. I'll post them into the uh, through the questions channel, and we'll pick them up and we'll we'll address them at the end. So with that, delighted to kick it off, and I'll hand over now to Michael, who's going to introduce our speaker today, Laurie. Excellent. Thank you so much, Kieran. Um, hello, everybody. It's, it's a great morning for us down here. You know, it's Friday of the weekend's on its way. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure to introduce Laurie Kyo, uh, who's a Bank of New York Mellon for, I believe, almost nine, nine and a half months at this point. Uh, Laurie is our EMEA Digital Assets Leader. Uh, he's also the founder of Blockchain Ireland and an adjunct professor at Trinity in Tech Trends. So he is going to walk us through sort of the future of digital assets in Ireland. Um, and again, we will have a Q&A session at the end. So over to you, Laurie. Thank you very much, uh, Irish Bonds, Kieran and, and Michael for the opportunity um, to be here this morning and I hope everybody is well. So really what we wanna to do today is, yeah, it, it, is talk about digital assets. Um, I guess, what are they? What are the trends? And then also um, to give you a bit of a window as to some of the work that BY Mellon is doing in this space. Um, so please feel free to, um, to, to jump in with questions. You can put them in the chat um, and then we can also have a, uh, hopefully a bit of a, a lively debate um, in about 25 minutes time or so. But hopefully that's okay with everybody. Um, so look, kicking off, I think what's really important to say is that, you know, the term digital asset seems to have grown significantly over the last 12 months. And the question is why? Um, and really the, the answer to that question is that digital assets have emerged, although cryptocurrency, um, so the likes of Bitcoin and either, and all the way through to, I guess, to Dogecoin, um, have grabbed headlines for all sorts of different reasons. Uh, digital assets, it's not just simply about cryptocurrency. It is also about, as we can see in the slide, stable coins, it's about CBDCs or central bank digital currencies. It's about tokens um, and all the way through to non-fungible tokens, which we'll discuss a little bit more now. Um, so it's important when you hear that term, it's that you understand it's a, it's a broad spectrum of digital assets, number one. And number two, um, the, the question perhaps that you should be thinking is when somebody says digital assets, is which one? Um, and how is it relevant to, um, to your business, your team, your product, your customer, your client, as the case may be? So definitely import, uh, important to make note of that. Um, so look, I, I guess to kind of touch on this a little bit more, so cryptocurrency, um, I guess the likes of Bitcoin and Ether, and it was really around this time last year when the start of the bull run 
really kicked in. And um, so we had, I guess, Bitcoin coming from kind of $5,000, $10,000, $12,000, hitting those kind of price points. Um, followed by PayPal's announcement that they were getting into, um, I guess, the um, the ability to buy, sell, and hold um, crypto at a retail level. I, I personally, I remember reading that headline and just went, that is significant, and that is going to do some crazy things to, to the market. Um, and on the, after that, I think we saw, I guess, um, Stan Druckenmiller, Bill Miller, um, Ray Dalio, um, and a number of other, uh, I guess, high-profile um, billionaire wealth managers um, say that, you know what, they, they kind of begun to change their tune in relation to, uh, to cryptocurrencies and started to make investments and started to put allocations of their funds into crypto. Um, and then that continued to grow and grow and grow as, uh, as time went on. Also important to say that, yeah, look, um, it is not always up and to the right. Um, there were definitely, um, there were corrections along the way. Um, but it's interesting to see, I guess, that period of volatility, how long it lasts, what was the base, how long it stays there, and so on. I think another important point to note around um, the, the overall crypto market um, is that it took 10 years for the crypto market to go from you know, close to $0 to $1 trillion. It then took 90 days, nine zero days, for the crypto market to go from $1 trillion to $2 trillion. So if we're talking uh, about exponential growth and the speed of change and speed of innovation and speed of adoption, um, I think that is a very um, good indicator to show you how fast this space is moving. Um, another point to note as to why it's moving at the pace it does, one of the big reasons is that it's due to the fact that a lot of the underlying technologies for these different blockchains are open source. Um, so I'm able to go on, I'm able to uh, go online and take an instance of a, a solution and then basically um, take that, configure it to the way I want it to be and create a new company, new solutions, the case may be. My piece is open source, Mike can then go in and copy that. Um, similarly, um, Kieran can go in and copy uh, Mike's from there. So that is driving innovation. So there's one area, and we'll come on to touch about a bit, a bit of this later on, DeFi, which is on the front cover of The Economist this week, which is interesting. Um, so there's a, a notable, or one of the largest kind of um, DeFi protocols out there called Compound. That's actually, actually being copied, I think over 75 times, over 75 other DeFi protocols have been developed using Compound's open source code. So you can see how, one solution can spawn many, many others. And I think that is a big driver for the level and pace of innovation in this space. Um, so look, that's the kind of little piece on, I guess, cryptocurrency, especially, I guess, the growth at a, at a market level. I think it's also important to note at an Ethereum level, really what we're seeing, in, and to give a kind of two second piece, Bitcoin was, was designed really to be a, a store of value and an exchange of value. Um, so how do I exchange something on a peer-to-peer -peer basis without going, without going through a bank or central bank um, and also meant to be a, a digital gold? Um, and what developers found is that it was difficult to develop applications on top of Bitcoin. And so Vitalik Buterin really developed um, the Ethereum blockchain. So he was interested in the features and attributes of the Bitcoin blockchain 
but he wanted to make it so you could develop applications on top of it. So Ethereum was born. So think of it like the Bitcoin blockchain, like your pocket calculator does one thing very, very well, but difficult to then do other things because it performs that singular function. And um, so think of Ethereum more like your, your iPhone on top of which lots of applications live. And that's why I think you've seen Ethereum grow and grow and grow a lot um, due to DeFi, due to non-fungible tokens, which we'll, which we'll come on to in a second. And now as we get into the next level uh, or, or layer of different blockchain protocols, whether that be Polkadot, whether that be Cardano, Solana, all these different blockchains, they are being developed, um, I guess, to try and be cheaper, better, faster than Ethereum. Um, so it, it, it is, I think, it, it, what would I say here? I don't think it's a case that there's going to be, a, in my personal view, that, that there's going to be one winner. I think what we're going to continue to see is lots of innovation, lots of new platforms forming. Um, and I think the really the important thing to note is where are the developers going? Where are the apps being built? And why are they going there? Um, so if one platform is very expensive, then you're going to see developers move to other platforms which or protocols which are less expensive to interact with and develop their solutions. So that's a little bit on that. Okay, moving on. Stable coins. Stable coins ultimately are a cryptocurrency which is pegged to, to a dollar. Um, and they mainly are pegged to a dollar, but they could also be pegged to a euro. They could be pegged to, uh, I guess, the, the pound as the case may be. Um, and what they try and do is that they try and remove the volatility associated to cryptocurrency. So for example, if you buy Bitcoin, um, you can then transfer your Bitcoin into a stable coin. Um, and then you could then use that stable coin to purchase other cryptos. The, why do people use stable coins? As I mentioned, to reduce volatility. So basically, it's also to reduce fees. Um, so if you go from Bitcoin and then into fiat, right, into euro or dollar, there will be fees for that. So what we're seeing lots of people do is they will move their, um, they will move Bitcoin into a stable coin to reduce any fees associated or, or reduce the, the amount of exposure they get to those fees to go from Bitcoin to a stable coin or back as the case may be. Um, so they're becoming very, I guess, prolific. And um, there's a big focus in the US on stable coins and, and regulation and legislation around that. And um, so I think who are the big players in this space? Tether would be one, USDT. I think we're also seeing um, uh, Circle USDC becoming very prominent in this space. And the growth of stable coins is significant. And it's also linked back um, to that area of decentralized finance, which I, I mentioned we touched on later on as well. Um, so growing area, one to watch, um, and yeah, lots more to come on that topic. Um, central bank digital currencies, so what are they in terms of being a digital asset? Central bank digital currencies are exactly that. And they are a, a central bank issued digital currency. So whether it be the digital euro, the digital dollar, digital yuan, as the case may be, digital pound. Um, and where this started was actually was Facebook's announcement um, back in 2019 when they said that they were going to create a, a, a new uh, a new form of currency called Libra. Um, and I, personally, and I think there's a lesson of, in PR around this, because Facebook became the, the most prominent name behind the over 30 companies that were supporting the initiative to create this um, new new currency. Um, which was outside the control of central banks, 
um, I think a lot of people um, became basically said, hold on a second, what is this? What does it mean? How does it work? And what does it mean to the financial system? Um, and basically the brakes were applied. Um, and then it resulted in central banks understanding, going, hold on a second, is there a move into these digital currencies? And you know, what's our view? Um, should we move into this area? And the key question here is, how do central banks or governments or countries stay relevant in an increasingly digital environment? Could it be the case, let's say in Sweden, where you know people move away um, from the, I guess from the from the krona and start using dollars or start using crypto, as the case may be. Therefore, um, Sweden losing control on a very important attribute of their economy. Um, and so staying relevant actually is, and there's some really good papers on this, there was also another piece in The Economist on this around gov coins um, that gets into, gets into the detail on it. But remaining relevant, having control of your financial system and monetary supply is a big reason behind it. And from a, a Euro perspective, we've seen Christine Lagarde say that um, there's now a study taking place, um, a, a two-year study, um, in relation to uh, central bank digital currencies for, for the Eurozone or, or digital Euro. Um, and that if it was to come out, build would start, I think they said in, in 2027 um, or something like that, or, or maybe it was even 2026. So you can imagine that, that would at least take three years um, before we'd have a digital Euro. So I do think it's something that, you know, um, that is on the horizon. I think it's more of a medium to longer term play. Um, and especially for, I guess, when you're working across lots of different member states within the Eurozone, um, there'll be lots of different considerations to think about. In terms of benefits of central bank digital currencies, um, some of the, the benefits, but by no means, you know, this is not an exhaustive list, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this as well, is that what you want to be able to do is, you know, reduce the ability to launder money. And um, so if you have a government issued digital currency from birth, effectively what that means is the, the money that's created, the digital euro that's created, um, it will have a very clear trail as to it was created, it was then issued to me, um, it then went to Mike, to Kieran, and then the history, the full history of that um, central bank digital currency will be available to banks or to, to the government. So they'll be able to analyze, right, all the different trends and data associated to it. And if they start seeing, I guess, a a anomalies or points of interest, they're able to drill into and investigate, hold on a second, why does that person have it? Why did it go from here to here, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a surveillance component to this. Um, so much so that that was the number one, uh, I guess, question raised to um, the European Central Bank and the European Commission about the future of central bank digital currencies or a digital euro um, in Europe. Um, so that's definitely one. So there is, I think it will make money laundering harder, but there is also a privacy and a surveillance aspect that needs to be balanced. Um, I think also what it enables is it enables pinpoint and um, for those in the in the crypto community airdrops so let's say there's a, a flood in a certain part of ireland the government will be able to pinpoint the digital wallets of those people who need funding and that funding can be provided and um, with accuracy to those digital wallets instantly so that is another potential benefit of a central bank digital currency that can be literally i guess controlled and pinpointed to provide relief uh, as the case may be um, I think we're also seeing here um, some interesting developments in China. They already have a, a central bank digital currency in the digital yuan, um, and they are continuing to push it out. Um, and 
it's it's pretty fascinating. I think you can have lots of different views on this. Um, you know what they one of the one of the thought processes out there is that um, they you know they weren't in control of Bitcoin or these open source cryptocurrencies. Um, and effectively, Bitcoin was doing you know it was increasing in value. And their digital yuan or central bank digital currency wasn't doing very well. So one of the levers, and um, now this is not this is not my view, but some commentators' view is that the thought process for China was if they ban um, Bitcoin and Ether and other cryptocurrencies, that will result in the adoption of their own central bank digital currency increasing, um, and therefore becoming more, uh, I guess, um, uh, adopted. So it's interesting to see, but it's important to note that. This is happening today and it looks like over a medium to longer term that these will come into existence now i think what has to be said here is that it isn't the case that there's kind of two or three or five big decisions and um, it's the case that there are many if not you know hundreds of pretty big decisions that need to be made and that's why the the real um driver behind the length of time that it will take for central bank digital currency to come out are the design decisions and design principles that all of the different actors in a in a country in a government in a society will need to consider for this to work and behave um, and that will take time and so that is actually the real driver as to why aren't these coming out today or tomorrow or next year is that there are a lot of very important decisions as to how these would function and work um, so that's a, a little bit on cbdc's Important to note as well that um, in in Sweden they are actually not using a blockchain um, to to enable their e-krona. Um, they evaluated different players and entities, um, and actually they've gone in a path which they're they're not using a blockchain. So um, you know, blockchain isn't always the answer to everything, as I've, I've definitely learned in, in certainly in, in my career. Um, okay, so that's central bank digital currencies, tokenized securities. Right? Look, ultimately, what is a token? A token is basically um, you can tokenize anything, right? You could tokenize a pen that's sitting on your desk right now. Um, and that basically means you can turn it uh, into a, a digital representation of something. So a, a token represents your pen. It can be broken up into many tokens. And um, if you feel there's value in it, and then you're trying to uh, provide increased access or a, a bigger investor base to invest in that asset. So what we're seeing a lot of interest in is, I guess, when you have expensive and illiquid assets, um, tokenization could be a way to provide a bigger investor base to invest in those assets and um, number one and number two it could also provide the creation of a, a secondary market and um, so people could trade those tokens without the underlying asset being sold it also could provide the ability to create and increase liquidity which I think is also um, important uh, as well I think another really important area around tokenization especially of, I guess, you know, let's say we're talking about commercial real estate, um, is that, you know, based on, you know, certainly research that I've done in conversations that we've had, I guess, with, with clients is that um, it's interesting to see that where people see tokenization going is, is that if you're walking down a street and you see a commercial building, you know, wouldn't it be great if you're able to open an app on your phone and buy a token um, so that you can participate and hopefully get access to the upside of that commercial asset as it appreciates in value. 
um, and it to be as easy as that. So, of course, you can do that through through REITs or uh, other financial instruments that exist today. But the thought process is in the same way that you're able to go into your Revolut account today and you're able to quickly purchase a share um, in XYZ or quickly sell it. And the thought process here is that over time, you'll be able to purchase tokens in various, you know, illiquid um, and expensive assets. So now, unless the, you know, the group is made up of ultra high net worth individuals who has access to, you know, millions at your disposal, um, ultimately, it's that democratization of expensive and illiquid assets is a key feature of what tokenization can bring. Um, so I think that's another important area. I think another area that we touch on as well is in relation to um, tokenization of, of securities, so bonds. So, and I'm sure there's a whole pile of people on the call who know a lot more about bonds than I do, but really, I guess the, the process around the bond issuance is, um, it certainly could be automated, could be made more efficient, could be done in a in a cheaper, better, faster way. And so I think there's there's lots of entities out there that are looking at, uh, I, I guess, the tokenization of bonds so that um, bonds can be issued in that cheaper, better, faster way. And um, through the use, let's say, of, of smart contracts, which is a bit of a buzzword, but smart contracts ultimately are self-executing contracts when certain criteria are met. So if this event happens, trigger this payment. So looking at how smart contracts could be used um, it, 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 as part of a, a bond issuance or a token bond issuance. A key feature with the token as well is that it is programmable. You're able to program it to do very specific things at specific times. So it could be that you use um, a token and you program rules that only a certain set of individuals or a certain set of companies or uh, holders can actually access the token, right? That could be one, so effectively you're whitelisting and you're building that into the token itself. Two, as well, you could build in automated coupon payments. So it will perform these functions at very specific dates, at specific times, as the case may be. Um, so that is an area that is definitely being looked at. The European Investment Bank and um, SoftGen and others, um, and Goldman have participated in a, a number of efforts in that space. Um, so I think it's, a, it's an area to watch for 2022. Um, and then we get into another area, and this is really around, I guess, non-fungible tokens. Um, and it could be tokenized art, it could be tokenized, um, I guess, even luxury cars. And that kind of goes back to the same principle of, I guess, when you talk about art or luxury cars, expensive, illiquid assets um, that appreciate value. You know, the older Ferraris are, are actually getting gaining in value, believe it or not. Um, so if you were able to um, purchase a token, um, then effectively um, that will enable you to potentially get a piece of the upside. So that's, that's an area. And the same thing, I guess, we're seeing with art as well. Another flavor of tokenization is this area of non-fungible tokens. And non-fungible tokens simply means that you own a token which is a, a unique piece of ownership um, of a specific asset. And some of those assets are a, it can be a, of a um, footage of a famous slam dunk, of a famous try in rugby, of a famous goal. Um, now you don't own the IP, you just own that, that, that image which has basically been recorded or issued using blockchain technology to say that there's only one and you are the owner of that. Um, now, where it gets into more of a philosophical debate is that effectively, um, 
the why would anyone put value on that footage if you don't own the IP? And and that is a great question. Ultimately, it's based on the platform that is cr that creating these different videos or creating these different clips, um, and people do see value in them. So we we've seen a piece of art by Beeple, uh, an English artist, and um, sell for sixty nine million dollars as an NFT. Um, we've seen uh, and subsequently it's been sold um, I think on to Singaporean investors and it's been sold on again um, we've seen I guess many other different things um, our NFTs be created and um, punk um, cyber cyberpunks and um, pieces of art be created um, in the form of these non-fungible tokens which is just a it's a, a digital image or a video where you can demonstrate unique ownership um, and they, they're in marketplaces where these can be bought and sold. People are using them as collectibles, people are using them to speculate and then they're looking to, to flip them if they think they can, I guess, um, make money or speculate upon them. I think for me, in terms of NFTs, I think we are at the end of the beginning but not at the beginning of the end. And what I mean by that is, is really because I think that they have um i think they have created an opportunity for companies um all over the world and especially during covid times one of the things that we had during covid was we didn't have physical events we had digital experiences as we get back to normal what we're really beginning to see now is that we will have a, a merge or a blur of the physical experience right attending gigs which i'm sure we're all looking forward to um but as well as the digital experience and I think a great example of this is Kings of Leon. So Kings of Leon actually created their last album through bundles or packs of NFTs. They then went a step further and they used um, the, the wonders of Roald Dahl and created a uh, Willy, Wonka, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory style golden ticket. So if you bought a bundle of NFTs that you could own, right? So let's say they were coming in packs of six or 10. Um, in certain bundles, there was a golden ticket um, for you to get a front row seat and a backstage pass to meet the band. So you have to participate in the digital experience to get access to that, those unique physical experiences, all the while increasing fan engagement. And I think we're going to start to see this happen a whole pile more, um, not just in relation to, to music, but also definitely in relation to sport. Um, so I, if you bear with me for a moment, if you think about this, if you were to own an NFT of a certain football player scoring a great goal um, and you own that NFT, right, and that, that specific ownership um, of that clip um, and that footballer, you're at a game and that footballer sco scores a fantastic goal, does that mean that the value of the NFT that you hold will increase in value? Quite potentially. Um, so I think we're into a really interesting, exciting era for marketers to bridge physical and digital a whole lot more. Um, and for the digital experience, you know, whether we're sitting at home and watching sport to, to really that level of interaction to increase significantly. Um, so I, I think, yeah, the, whether it be the Six Nations um, or even where we saw, I guess, you saw Lionel Messi as part of his PSG deal accept part of his contract in tokens um, so this is a, this is an area which is, is is i guess continuing to grow so look hopefully that gives you a bit of a, an overview in relation to digital assets we spoke about cryptocurrency we spoke about stable coins we spoke about central bank digital currencies we spoke about tokenized securities and then we spoke about tokenized assets so hopefully you have a bit of a flavor as to the world out there and what's going on and also fundamentally the pace it's moving um, in relation to touch on this for, for a little bit, 
around the, the work that BY Mellon is doing. I think the way I put it is maybe in two parts. So one is looking at um, the roadmap for 2021 and areas that we're looking at for 2022. Um, so really back in um, February, we made an announcement that we were um, creating a digital assets unit, um, so which I'm, I'm proud to be part of. And then we also announced that we were um, creating a capability to provide digital asset custody. Um, so what does that mean? So, you know, you can obviously, you can hold stocks and bonds in physical form or through databases and things of that nature, which show that you own the right. But when it comes to digital assets, there are no kind of, there is no database, um, so to speak, um, and there are no kind of paper certs. So really what you hold are the keys to the cryptocurrency that you own. So if you own Bitcoin, you have a key which gives you unique um, access to prove that you are the owner of that cryptocurrency, but also gives you the unique access to sign transactions. So if I want to you know, send crypto to Mike that I'm able to then use my private key to sign that transaction so it goes from lawyer to Mike, uh, as the case may be. So these keys are really important, really important. And look, as the, as the world's largest, I guess, custodian, our job is to mine those keys, to facilitate the, uh, the custody of those digital assets. And mining those keys is a really, really critical part of that service. So at the moment, we are working um, uh, very busily um, to really have our digital asset custody solution up and running. And that will be um, for US institutional investors, um, for Bitcoin and Ether. Um, and now pending regulatory approval, we will have that up and running by the end of this year. So it is, it has been a, um, yeah, a very busy period. The, the digital asset custody team have been doing fantastic work um, to, to get the solution to, to where it is. Um, but all things going well, that will be up and running and live uh, by the end of this year. Um, so that's, that's a big part of our roadmap for this year. Another area that we're working on is in relation to fund services. Um, so fund services, which I'm sure a number of the folks out there today, it, it, you know, are directly involved in or indirectly involved in. So, you know, fund in accounting, um, ETF settlements, ETF basket creation, services of that nature. Um, and really what we're what we're doing here is that. Um, so through our uh, B1 Mellon's partnership with CIBC Mellon in, in Canada, where digital asset ETFs have been approved and there are a number of them out there. We're providing um, fund accounting and ETF settlement services for the majority of the, the near 20 digital asset ETFs that have been created. Um, so that's through a, a team in Toronto, but also a team in, in Florida as well. Um, we, there's also, a, there is a significant demand and there has been all the way back to 2013 for digital asset ETFs in the US. And so there's lots of, I guess, applications and proposals that need to be approved by the SEC. Um, and uh, our name is certainly down against a, a number of those, um, which is pending approval by the SEC. Uh, what ETFs do, I guess, is they provide, you know, as opposed to getting direct access um, or purchasing crypto directly, um, they provide a, a means to access crypto in a, in a regulatory way. Uh, a regulatory, you know, um, I guess, a regulatory abiding way, so to speak. Um, but also it removes a lot of the hassle in terms of 
um, own, uh, purchasing the crypto, mining the crypto, and then having to sell the crypto. You get the exposure, but you don't get that, I guess, operational risk that you may have to look after. And that is a big reason why um, we're seeing lots of appetite in the market um, from clients all over the world in, in relation to getting exposure through digital asset ETFs or through Bitcoin trusts. Grayscale being a fantastic example, the largest Bitcoin trust out there. They've th over 30 billion assets under management. Um, and that is uh, really what we're seeing when we ask clients, you know, why are they interested in, in entering into Grayscale's trust? It's, you know, the, it takes away the pain of having to, the, to purchase the crypto through exchanges, to look after private keys uh, and so forth. And that's a, that's a big part of it. Um, so fund services for us is an important piece. So through Canada, we have services up and running. Um, Grayscale, which I mentioned there, from the 1st of October, we'll be providing um, asset services um, and ETF, uh, sorry, asset services and, um, and, and fund, uh, sorry, fund accounting services to those guys. Um, and then also, as we get into um, uh, later on this year, we'll be looking to roll out these fund services in Europe pending regulatory approval. Um, so it is, it's an area that we're able to provide services today because of the fact that we're not in possession of any digital assets. And that's an important difference. When it comes to digital asset custody, it's a, it's a new product, it's a new service. There are lots of technical considerations and there's lots of operational risk, legal compliance, regulatory considerations um, that need to be worked through um, that really haven't existed before. And so if we look at it from a fund services, really we're, um, and for all the other providers out there, we're providing services that are very close to what happens today. So providing valuation services, creating a NAV, um, ETF basket creation, ETF settlement. A lot of these services exist today. It's applied to a new asset type, uh, if you will. So for us, fund services and digital asset custody are big areas that we're, we're focused on for this year. And then as we look at, into next year, I think, you know, areas that I touched on a, a little bit ago, as we look at tokenization, I think is an area that is uh, getting a lot of attention. Um, and um, certainly we're, we're getting, I guess, client interest in, in relation to that, um, into that area as we, as we look into 2022. Um, so really, Conscious, I kind of spoke there for about 30 minutes um, and would love to see and hear if there's questions and happy to kind of start a dialogue and, and get a bit of back and forth going. Thanks, Larry. We have one from Claire um, about can we explain our how we're utilizing our partnership with Fireblocks? So at the moment, BY Mellon has um, made an investment into a digital asset custody fintech um, called Fireblocks, uh, a pretty impressive company. Um, and yeah, BY Mellon has made an investment. We at the moment um, we are we're certainly investing in them. Um, in terms of a partnership, there's there isn't much more I can say just yet in relation to that. There'll be hopefully more news to come in the in the coming weeks on it. But what I can say about Fireblocks is that um, it is an interesting one. Effectively, what they do is they are using arguably uh, the most advanced form of cryptography um, to enable the, um, those private keys that I mentioned um, that show ownership and provide access. Um, 
to, to enable safe, secure digital asset custody. So it's a process called, and I, I, I will not get into this today, it's a process called multi-party computation is the name of the cryptography. Um, and for all the cryptographers out there, it would be deemed, I think, by people who are far more intelligent than me to be, yeah, the most up-to-date, the most cutting edge. And that is at the core of what Fireblocks do. Um, and we've seen other players, I think, in this space um, who were using other forms of cryptography move over to use um, that multi-party computation or MPC approach. Excellent. Thank you, Laurie. Um, from Kraken U, will the Digital Asset Custodial Service uh, and on U.S. asset management licensed operation. That doesn't, not quite sure. I might need a little bit more explanation on that one. Um, but while we're getting there, I actually had one for you, Lori. Uh, what are some of the upcoming challenges that we're going to see from regulators in this space, uh, especially our central bank? Sure. Look, I, I, I think what would I say here, based on how fast things are moving, um, I think it's hard for for any of us um, to stay up to speed with the latest and greatest in the developments in this space um, you know on a daily basis there is there are you know um, I guess endless developments um, so for me I think it's really important that you know through Irish funds and uh, you know um, representing our individual companies that we you know we look to continually inform and take I guess the central bank on that journey with us so for me I think that is that is on us as it is, you know, as much as it is on them to to really explain what is the latest and greatest um, what are clients looking for and what does that path look like. Um, so to be fair, um, the innovation hub, I think, is doing uh, is doing a great job to open the door um, and facilitate those conversations um, so that people are are informed. So for me, I would say definitely education and. Um, Secondly, I think an important area here is in relation to keeping an eye on what's going on at a European and at a global level from a competitive standpoint perspective. So at the moment, um, there is a piece of regulation called the Markets and Crypto Assets Proposal, um, which is working its way through the European Parliament. Um, now, that's, you know, it hasn't been signed. It's, it's, not, it's not passed. And it will continue to go through those processes in 2022 and, and hopefully come into effect in 2023. In that interim period, what we are seeing is that we're seeing different European countries take a, a, a progressive, if not aggressive stance um, in relation to creating increased or enhanced regulatory clarity so that they position themselves in a good light for this emerging asset class. So to give you an example, um, I think Luxembourg is probably a, a strong example of this, where they have passed specific laws that will facilitate uh, and enable, um, uh, I guess, assets to be recorded uh, on a blockchain, as the case may be, as tokens to be recognized. Um, that's about one area. I think another good example is in relation to Germany, where we've seen a number of different developments over the last few weeks. Number one, um, within their special funds structure, they can now allocate up to 20% um, of their fund in crypto. Um, now, look, um, I'm not saying that you know fund managers are going to go from zero to 20% overnight, but they actually now legally can do that. 
when they couldn't do it before. So that is an interesting development. They also have this securities register where um, I guess a blockchain technology will be used to um, record uh, and register different transactions that take place, which I think is also an important development. Germany also has a, a national blockchain strategy. Um, so that is a, another important area. France is coming out with, um, I guess, enhanced uh, laws in relation to the use of blockchain and DLT to, uh, I guess, to, to facilitate and enable certain financial services functions. I think we'll see the UK do something similar. So from an Irish competitive standpoint perspective, I think what's really important is for us to keep an eye um, and where possible, I think, you know, what we need to do is we need to not be left behind. I think that's a really important point. Um, if, if Germany um, and Luxembourg and, and Switzerland to a, to a lesser extent are creating these um, regulatory frameworks which companies are becoming interested in and they're looking to set up business there, then it is an imperative for us um, within the Irish funds community to really understand what's going on and then how do we position Ireland so that we can continue to remain a significant financial services ecosystem in Europe um, and the world? Okay, great. Thank you so much. We're up to five more questions. It's exciting. So I, I think I just <laughs> deciphered for uh, Kraken's uh, comment here. So will our digital asset custodial service be a U.S. asset management licensed operation? Um. I don't know is the short answer to that. It, um, the amount of perspective. The the focus at the moment, Kraken, is purely on the U.S. So um, we have a huge amount of work to do. So the the focus has just been U.S. Um, so um, I I don't know, and I think it, that would be probably be Q1 before we come back um, with the view. Um, and definitely also important to note that the 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 Central Bank of Ireland's view will also be very important uh, and inform that position as well. It's important to note that I think anybody who's looking to, I guess, get into the digital assets game um, in Ireland has to register as a virtual asset service provider of VASP. So um, important to note. Um, and also the innovation hub as part of the Central Bank will, will gladly meet with you to walk you through what that process is and how it works. Brilliant. Uh, from Peter Sherwood, uh, does BNY Mellon envisage providing a depository service in accordance with AIFMD to EU funds, uh, for example, AIS, for the, custody, for the custody of digital assets, including crypto or tokenized assets? Um, it it kind of goes back to the first piece, um, an area that we're exploring, but um, right now, from a custody and depository perspective, our focus is on uh, is on the U.S. We we need to um, I guess what we don't want to do is is make mistakes um, where you try and do lots of things at once and then you don't achieve anything. So our I guess our approach has been we are focusing on the U.S. Um, that is where our our efforts are um, and when we're in a position to look to I guess to to Ireland and to Europe. Um, we will engage the CBI, we'll start that process. But right now, that's um, that's not where we're at. Okay, great. And from our own Shane Mulcahy, uh, how will the emergence of digital asset servicing impact Irish fund services uh, as far as roles, responsibilities, skilling up? How do we change you know, education bases? Yeah, a great question, Shane. Um, what would I say here? 
for me, I think it's an opportunity, right? And this is the, you know, you can hear all sorts of different numbers and stats around, I guess, the size of the digital asset market. Um, for me, I think it's, it, it is the next big asset class that's out there. And I think it's a big opportunity. And I think it's an opportunity for Ireland. So I, I think we already have a very strong base when it comes to fund accounting, providing TA related services, middle office services as well. Um, and I think a lot of those services need to be applied to a different asset class. So it's not as if you're, you're kind of learning everything from scratch. Sure, you're learning about nuances as to what are the different types of uh, cryptocurrencies, number one, um, you know, how do you value them? Um, from an accounting perspective, you're looking at eight decimal places in relation to Bitcoin and 16 in relation to Ethereum and Ethereum derivatives. How does that work? Um, so I, I think there's nuances, but I think we are in a really strong position to actually, um, I, I guess, to capitalize on this new asset class um, based on the core skill set that we have already. And so this is a, a thing that through the, I guess, through Irish funds um, and other entities, we've met with uh, Minister Donoghue, we've met with Minister Fleming um, to really outline that, you know, this is a this is an opportunity. And, and don't get me wrong, it's not something that um, I think we need to um, throw caution to the wind and not have strong regulations or not have you know strong compliance rules um, I absolutely think we do and we need all of those things but I think we can do all of those things and still embrace digital assets at the same time agreed excellent um, and I believe we touched on this a little bit but from Ron and Griffin um, any views on European regulatory environment which we did speak about versus kind of the Asian regulatory environment so Singapore versus us or you know Singapore versus Germany that type of thing yeah um, what would I say here um, I, I think what we're seeing is that um, Singapore Hong Kong um, they are I, I think uh, always very progressive in, in terms of what they do um, I, you know and I think that rivalry between I guess or polite rivalry between Singapore and Hong Kong pushes each other further um, I, I really genuinely I think the the markets and crypto assets proposal that the European Commission has put forward I think is actually really progressive it's there to protect investors and um, but it's also I think the key thing when it comes to digital assets regardless of the jurisdiction is that what's required is clarity what becomes very difficult especially for you know very regulated entities like you know like all the the participants on the call here today and um, where there's you know where there isn't clarity that means you can't operate because you know companies like uh, the ones we represent will simply just not perform those functions because the risk is too high and so I think the the jurisdictions that are providing clarity that is enabling, I guess, ecosystems to develop, products to be created, um, and demand to, to be created in turn. And um, so the Mika proposal is helping to do that. And then on that interim basis, we have the likes of France and Germany and Lux, um, who are creating those specific rules on an interim basis until Mika comes out. So I, I guess this was the point I was trying to get at: is is there an opportunity for Ireland to to create some perhaps you know interpretations? or interim rule sets um, in advance of Mika coming into effect. In relation to Asia, I think what we're seeing there is we're seeing a lot of activity 
um, I think specifically in relation to Singapore, um, DDS, I think has done, done fantastic work. They have created their own, I think, digital asset uh, exchange. They have created um, tokenized bonds on their own platform. So probably no surprise for those who are familiar with DBS that they are you know, leading the way and continue to do so. Um, in relation to the HKMA, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, they are doing a lot of interesting work, just to call out one specific area in relation to green bonds. So um, how um, blockchain will be used to create um, or issue green bonds. Um, so that will make the process, I guess, cheaper, better, faster, but also increase transparency around what are the underlying assets that are being invested in, in order for them to demonstrate that they are actually green and that, that it's not greenwashing. Excellent, thank you. Uh, from Steve Harris, uh, can, let's expand a little bit about non-fungible tokens, you know, and NFTs, and why those are now important. And, and you know, and I think I can help out a little bit about this. You know that, you know, if you're a painter, or you're a sculptor, you always had a physical piece of something that you've created to sell to somebody. You may be able to make prints of it, things like that. But if you're a digital artist, you didn't really have that, right? So people could just download it ten thousand times, and you may have gotten paid for it once, or maybe not. So I think. NFTs are kind of that way of allowing a digital artist or a digital content creator that freedom of being able to sell their artwork and see something back from it. And it was, you know, the question goes on to say, why buy this video clip while others can still see it, you know, or can can still uh, download it? No, totally. I think your point is spot on, Mike. And it's look, it's an interesting area, and I think it it really triggers debate as to as to why. And the way I look at it is is that there is demand for NFTs across not just art, but other areas that I've touched on as well. So why is because there are people who are willing to buy these. Um, that, you know, people will create where there's a market opportunity. Um, so there's a, an Irish artist, a guy called Shane Griffin, um, who has created some NFTs that you can Google. There's one fantastic video um, of a, a Volkswagen Beetle and flowers growing over it. Um, and basically, you know, exactly to your point, especially during COVID, you know, how do artists generate any revenue? How do they, you know, generate an income? And um, if galleries are closed and um, people can't come in and see things, so it pushed them online. And NFTs became a way for communities to be created. Um, so people, people could connect, people could see what people were creating. And then look, if people wanted to buy things, help those artists start to gather digital collectibles, that's what NFTs provide. So uh, by no means do I think that they're, you know, this is a, a, a distinct asset class. I think we're going to see it change significantly over time. Um, but the art component, I think, is it, it's fascinating and it's still growing. So Damien Hurst came out with uh, an announcement a couple of weeks back where he said that he was creating NFTs. But as part of the deal, you had to choose after 12 months whether you got the physical piece or the digital piece. And if you chose the digital piece, he'd smash the physical piece. Um, so it is, it, it's, it's artists being creative um, in a digital realm. But like I said, I think we're gonna see it in the music space. We are gonna see NFTs in the sports arena. Um, so I, I think, yeah, expect to see a lot more of it in lots of different ways. Excellent. Uh, so we have 87 minutes left. So I think we can, uh, we have one or one or two more questions tops. Uh, so from Nevin Redmond, what is our view on the EIB initiative? Uh, do we see it attracting long-term institutional interest? Is it a precursor for Euro CDBC? Um, my view on the EIB piece is that I think we're going to see 
more issuances of that nature. So I think Santander and an Irish guy, John Whelan, who's the, the MD um, uh, of Santander, I think digital uh, in, in Madrid, played a, a significant role there. Um, and I think we're going to see more bond issuances of that nature with the EIB. And, and that is based on demand. Um, so like realistically, in the game that we're all in, if you do something and no one cares, that's the end of that. So um, I think if, if we're starting to see um, bigger, uh, bigger issuances beyond 100 million or 200 million, we'll start to get into the 500 million range um, and so on, then it is based because there are people who want to participate in that product or service. So I'd expect to see more on that um, this year, um, whether that be um, in, in the Eurozone or in the UK, um, and I'd expect to see a whole lot more in 2022. Excellent. Um, and I think we actually have enough, we have one last clarification from you over Kraken, which Kraken's a great app, by the way, I happen to use it. Um, <laughs> You know, what does Ireland look like as far as our set of digital asset regulations? I'm betting that we are going to end up following the ECB and, you know, kind of uh, European Banking Authority guidelines. But I believe that there is enough interest from local Irish based funds and um, companies that we're constantly tapping, you know, kind of ministers in the CBI on the shoulder to going, are we looking at this yet? You know, so I think that I, I obviously we don't have anything quite yet. You know, we're, we're, we do have to kind of follow the lead from our, our EU friends, but I do believe that there is enough interest locally that we will be at the forefront uh, when these things kind of come to a head. Yeah, look, good question. I think, you know, the feedback I've received so far is that, um, you know, I, I, I guess calling a spade a spade, I think the likes of Germany and Luxembourg have their noses out in front. Um, and I think we need to, to look at that carefully and understand and assess perhaps what we need to do differently. So that's number one. Number two, I think on the positive side, I would say that the virtual asset service provider um, regulation that came out from the central bank um, is positive, right? Initially, when that came out, I think it was confusion across the, the digital asset or crypto community in Ireland. But actually, it's a positive thing. Why? Because it goes back to my point around clarity. It provides clarity as to what the process is. Now, do I think it's, you know, it, for companies, you know, large banks and entities, you know, who are on this call, um, I think it is, you know, paying legal fees um, to, to fill in these forms and produce good business cases is, is part of the business that we do. So I do think perhaps for smaller entities, it is a bigger challenge in order to submit filings of that nature. So I think there's probably a bit of balance there as to perhaps how that mechanism can be looked at. But on the whole, I think um, the virtual asset service provider um, initiative that the central bank has put out is a positive thing. And if anything, I think we need more initiatives and clarity like that from the central bank. So it's clear, you know, if you want to perform this function, you need to go through this process and be approved. And you know what? It may take six months, right? And that's the it's it takes six months in Germany, and that's completely fine. And um, but it provides clarity to operate. Excellent. Well, thank you so much to everybody who wrote in with a question. Um, I'm glad we were able to get to everyone, and we're bang on time, which is why Kieran's back. So thank you so much, Laurie. And I will hand everything back over to Kieran. Great stuff. Some great uh, content there, Laurie. Thanks very much, and uh, Mike as well. And great 
great questions too. So thank you guys in the background on the Irish Fund side. We had Alison, Claire and Dave working uh, in the background, getting the show going and keeping it running very smoothly. So thank you to you guys. Our next session is tentatively scheduled on uh, the week of October 18th, I believe. We will be going total different angle for that session. It'll be on effectual innovation with the guys from the, uh, the Digital Transformation Lab in Cork. There will be a feedback form on the back of this. So as we roll out more sessions over the next couple of months, if there's any specific topics you'd like to include, uh, please let us know. So just bang on coming up to 10 o'clock now. Thank you again, Laurie, Mike, and uh, the Irish Fund guys. And that's it for this month's Tech Speaker Series. Thank you all. Thank you so much.